0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesy, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm speaking with David Sartorius about his recent book, Ever Faithful, Race, Loyalty, and the Ends of Empire in Spanish Cuba. David, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk. Um, well, I kind of want to start off with the origins of this project. Um, your, your project really examines the concept of loyalty within colonial Cuba in the 19th century. Um, and can you just sort of say a little bit about what led you to that project?
1: Sure, sort of an intersection of, of reading the historiography and my first plunge into Cuban archives. So I was I was taken as an undergraduate and early in graduate school with kind of the scholarship about slavery and resistance in Cuba, um, the intersections of race and nationalism. It's such a you know, I was 18, had no idea that something like slavery or race relations happened outside of the United States. So that, from that uh, yield, I kind of blossomed as a scholar and got interested in this. But when I started going to Cuban archives, I noticed that the stories of resistance, rebellion, revolution, that it had kind of first attracted me to Cuba weren't the only stories that I was noticing in documents. And there were as many stories about Cuba as the ever faithful isle and people actively supporting spanish rule and and it was when that didn't fit with what i was reading that that i hatched the idea that this could be a project well, well that's
0: okay. A good place to start, actually, in terms of this idea about um, Cuba seeing itself as ever faithful. That's the motto you, you mentioned at the beginning of the book. That it's, it's called itself the ever, ever faithful isle. Um, so can you explain maybe some of the origins of that and how loyalty becomes such a, a central part of at least the colonial Cuban identity? Sure. I'll start with what an odd
1: fit it probably sounds like, given that most people's association with Cuba is of of Anything but loyalty. It's about revolution and about resistance. Uh, but Cuba, until 1898, along with Puerto Rico and the Philippines, was uh, there were Spain's last colonies. And after mainland Latin American independence in the 18, it was like between 1810 in 1825 or so. So these these colonies got these titles given to them, um, Siempre Fiel, or, or the c- cities would get called Siempre Fielissima, for it's like super faithful, super loyal cities. Uh, and any piece of official correspondence you look at from the 19th century has that emblazoned on the top. Any official seal will say the ever faithful Isle of Cuba. And it's. I think it's easy to write off as a as a... Bureaucratic formality, but then when you think about how loyalty sort of seeped into people's daily lives, uh, I got a little curious about what it actually meant on the ground and how people made sense of that
0: so let's let's start with some of the issues around the nineteenth century and and you know Spain has a pretty complicated political history in that period, and it, and it kind of uh, bears out in some complicated policies to Cuba. so, Um, uh, not to have you go into too much detail necessarily, but could you just talk a little bit about um, sort of the turmoil in the Spanish Empire in the early decades of the 19th century um, and sort of what happens in the first four decades of that period and how it affects Cubans' rights and ideas of citizenship and things like that? Absolutely.
1: It might be a surprise to some listeners to know that citizenship and rights were things that were on the table in the Spanish Empire because it's not what we associate with. um, We think of a colonial system where there might be privileges extended to law loyal subjects, but not necessarily the rights of citizenship. But that's exactly what comes onto the table in 1812, when Spain drafts its first constitution. So we know that Napoleon invades in 1808, and it it drives the monarchy into exile in Cadiz, and that's where there's a a constitutional cortes, a a parliament's formed. While there are these juntas, these committees that that are ruling throughout the colonies and throughout Spain in the name of the deposed king. And uh, this constitutional parliament is fascinating because it brings American delegates, it brings... Yeah, including indigenous delegates, right? There are these discussions about inclusion and representation and sovereignty that are really on the table more than a lot earlier than they are in even other parts of Europe. But they're, they revolve around questions of who counts as a Spaniard and who could count as a citizen. So in some ways, it relies on these much older definitions of of vecindad y naturaleza, of kind of residency and and foreignness and nativeness, that come from early modern Castilian law, uh, but it actually takes on quite a, a modern hue. So. African-descended people living in the Spanish Empire are are considered not eligible for citizenship. We're talking about adult men here, not eligible because they are technically immigrants. They migrated to the Americas, whereas Native uh, Americans, Indigenous people are extended the rights of citizenship because they're native to what's understood at the Parliament as Spanish territory. So these politics play out uh, even once the constitution is, is is not in effect. So the king comes back in 1814 to the throne and immediately nullifies this constitution and then it's briefly back in effect in the 1820s, but uh, no matter it's, it, when it's in place, it becomes the way that, that Cubans and Spaniards and Puerto Ricans talk about political inclusion. And the, the great frustration comes in 1837 when there's a new Spanish constitution. That excludes the colonies. It says that the the people of the colonies will be governed by special laws, which sort of actively excludes them from any discussion of citizenship. Uh, And that means that people turn to a lot of other different routes to seek conclusion or, or some sort of political membership in the Spanish Empire.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about, I mean, throughout the book, there's really this issue, which is true across the Caribbean, around um, how you extend certain rights to individuals of color, um, and and sort of, I like the one of the things that you do very effectively is you show that there's not necessarily um, a, a strict relationship between someone's background, their ethnicity, and how loyal they're they're going to be to the to the regime, either the colonial regime or the Spanish regime. Um, do you see any kind of definitive relationship between color and loyalty, and, and maybe how do how do the the observer, the, the the individuals that you look at, really challenge that idea that you know if you're going to be a person of color, you're going to have this certain political um, alignment? This is what Spanish colonial officials and contemporary
1: historians might have in common, is that they would love to see clear patterns about <laughs> linking uh, linking sort of status to uh, political affinities. But that never bore out, no matter how hard they tried. Spaniards could never really document or count or, or quantify loyalty based on someone's background. Um I think one of the most common explanations of why Cuba' stayed loyal is that white slave owners and the the government that acted often in their name preferred the stability of spanish rule to the to the kind of the uncertainty of independence and the social instability that came with it in so many places in Spanish America. So, uh, on the face of it, there's a long standing explanation that there's quite a correlation that it's white Cubans who were fearful of slave unrest and wanted to keep their profits from sugar who uh, were interested in maintaining the system but you know that that doesn't account for so many people of spanish ancestry who actively fought for independence or or were were plenty uh disloyal at certain moments and it doesn't account on the other hand for the many cubans of african descent enslaved and free who are really the subjects of my book who professed faith and um, adherence at many points to the Spanish crown, right? And that sometimes flies against the the, the worst expectations of Spanish officials that um, people of African descent were always itching for rebellion and and sort of under the thumb of a colonial system would do anything to fight it. So it took a little creative work in the archives to sort of suss this out and look past these these. Um, these generalizations that don't necessarily bear out. So
0: so what were some of the reasons why a free person of color or even an enslaved individual would profess loyalty to the Spanish? I mean, again, as you mentioned, it sort of goes against, I think, how a lot of historians see what enslavement is like and, and what kinds of loyalties enslaved people have. Um, so what were the motivations on the part of people of color um, to, to support the crown? Sure. Uh,
1: another way of addressing that is to think of what their motivations would have been for independence. And I think a lot of of, of people on the island were, were watching mainland independence movements um, with a lot of trepidation. <laughs> the, the promises of of sort of ending distinctions of, of status and um, race and casta were not bearing out, those inequalities were place. there wasn't a sense of national citizenship would necessarily bear more fruit than being a loyal subject of the crown. But it wasn't just a strategic move on the part of of Cubans of African descent, right? This is a professing loyalty was a long standing principle of political membership in the Spanish Empire and plenty of other polities in world history. Where one's, of course, people were subordinate to a king. That was clear to everyone. And so it was the the, kind of the default position from which people would petition the crown for privileges or concessions or, or gracias, you know, graces. They would say, as a loyal, humble vassal of the monarch. I want something. Please give it to me. <laughs> uh, that language goes right back to the 16th century, and, and I'm sure on the Peninsula much earlier. So, you know, it wasn't unique to Cubans of African descent to use that language and to understand those politics. But of course, the way subordination works is that they had many more socially subordinate positions from which to speak. So to say, you know, as a poor, humble, loyal slave. I'm seeking a new master as a, as a faithful uh, soldier in the colonial militias, right? I'm looking for, for support for my family or a pension for my wife. Um, this, was a, this was a standard practice that, that becomes racialized in the sense that it builds on the numerous hierarchies. But uh, when we think of colonial Spanish America as a, as a place that was unequal by design, Right. You see the ways that people worked with that inequality and not necessarily invoke the language of equality based on citizenship in a nation.
0: Mm -hmm. You also go into a lot of detail about the kinds of organizations that individuals of color and and enslaved individuals uh, uh, belong to. So what were some of the organizations that maybe fostered at least a discourse around loyalty? Sure. I, two come to mind, and one is a
1: one's an old one, and one's a new a, a set of new ones. Uh, sort of the old one is the colonial militia. So, right, Spain's territorial defense was often placed in the hands of of militias of of ordinary folks of uh, men in the communities. Those were racially segregated, right? There were compañías de blancos and pardos y morenos for for mulatos and blacks, and. Membership in those wasn't simply a an occupation, it was a means of social mobility, it was a marker of status, right? If we think of the importance of of military service in general in Spanish society or so many colonial societies, um, being a member of a militia marks someone as as honorable in society. So that was a way that, so you have, even as the, 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 the luster of militia service starts to decline in the 19th century, you still have men of African descent invoking their service to the crown as a way of getting, you know, better pay as a member of a militia, um, better claims in local government Some of them will invoke that. Uh, That extends itself to the first war for independence when it's not just the uh, militias of free men of color, but there's active recruiting of of slaves in the war effort. Um, Those promise freedom to any slave who supports Spain in the struggle against Spanish rule. So right as as is famous in Cuban history, there's a a, a movement that begins in eighteen sixty eight for Cuban independence that recruits free people of color and slaves and comes to take on a a race transcendent ideology and a multiracial army um those slaves who fought against that <laughs> could have a chance to earn their freedom so it's sort of an extension of the of the rewards for loyalty in the military context that comes from the militia service the other institution is is are the kind of asociaciones de color, the, these public associations, uh, voluntary associations, that had existed in various forms. We know of the cofradías and cabildos, these longstanding uh, institutions for Cubans of African descent. But after that first war for Cuban independence, uh, which is really a draw and leads Spain still in power to, to grant a number of concessions in Cuba, including political parties, uh, freedom of the press, free association, and in that moment, a number of associations crop up on the island in various cities and towns, so these are, these are uh, Sociedades de Color so specifically societies for people of African descent. Um, and you see in their, their negotiations, despite constant suspicion from authorities that they, they must be plotting independence that, um, many of their public activities are about professing loyalty to Spanish rule. They're about fundraising efforts for cholera victims in Spain. It's about playing by the rules of respectability and, um, and of patriotic participation in, in politics. So there's a way that that, that that, like you said, the discourse of loyalty is prominent with both of those
0: associations. And one of the things I think that readers might find surprising is that, you know, all this is going on within the the larger context of the Latin American independence movements of the 19th century. And, you know, if you think about the wider Caribbean context, the Haitian Revolution and this desire for kind of pushback against colonial rule. And so it, it sometimes seems strange to read this about these professions of loyalty among certainly individuals of African descent. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about this wider Caribbean context and and maybe um, either how it it fits in in a strange way with with what's going on or what's so unique about Cuba um, within these larger upheavals. Sure, I found in the research
1: and writing of this project between Caribbeanists, people who define themselves as such, and Latin Americanists and how they responded to this project, because from the perspective of Latin American history, Cuba's really the outlier here right the early 19th century is a time of independence we all teach our classes about it with a colonial modern split that happens in the 18 teens and 20s and cuba and puerto rico just don't fit that from the caribbean perspective if you consider yourself a historian of of the caribbean my goodness Loyalty to, to European colonial rule lasts well until the, the middle of the 20th century. It's not such a cut and dry story. So you do have the Haitian Revolution, but you have you know the other French colonies, which are still departments of France today. You have the British colonies that are still under you know the Jamaica, Barbados, Antigua, Trinidad. The list goes on. Who remain colonies until the middle of the 20th century? So the idea of of one's political subjectivity being formed under colonial rule isn't so surprising in the Caribbean context. And indeed, you find discourses of loyalty, you'll locate, you can, you can see it throughout the British Caribbean. Um, I think of labor movements in the 1920s and 30s that are that are seeking sort of concessions based on being good, loyal subjects of the, of the king or of the queen of England you see it in the french context but you know the french system extends citizenship in much more fulsome ways at some moments than it does in the british and spanish context so you see kind of Rewards for loyalty and, and that language being invoked in the French context. So in the Caribbean, the story of colonial loyalty is a much longer one and a much more prevalent one. That that kind of recedes from view when you're looking at it from the perspective of, say, Argentina or Mexico, where you know the events of 1808 in Spain set off the independence movements that that lead to a break from Spain, not necessarily the continuation in a Spanish system that that proceeds along the lines of discussing liberalism and citizenship and rights and freedom to have similar discourses that are happening in 19th century Spanish-American republics but don't necessarily get juxtaposed.
0: Mm-hmm. And so is there a way that the Cubans who are expressing loyalty are expressing it within the context of these Latin American revolutions? Um, are they trying to to construct an identity that's fully opposed to that. That's interesting.
1: Sometimes you'll find people making the argument, you know, by the 1880s, they're, they're referencing indirect rule in Africa, (laughs) (laughs) Africa, where colonial subjects are, you know, we can look now from, from the historiography and see that the British were certainly not hands off with uh, Africans in the British colonies, but a sense that, you know, People can govern themselves and, and proceed as they wish, and they didn't need the, the Spanish American republics as the example. In other moments, uh, Cubans could raise the specter of independence, right, as a almost a threat to Spain and say, you know, yes, you might be governing us by special laws, but please recognize <laughs> that there are, there are readily available options. Those didn't always look so appealing from Cuba, but they were there sometimes to be invoked. Um, the connections weren't necessarily as, as prominent as, as one might think if one wants to see these expressions of loyalty as, as part of a matrix of quote-unquote modern politics, right, to, to see were Cubans recognizing themselves as moderns alongside these, um, these new republics. That was, that's not as prominent in the discussions as I, I might have expected.
0: Well, one of the things that does happen is that there's a lot of warfare in Cuba and um, there, there are uprisings, there's a series of war, you know, just a number of wars towards the end of the 19th century, which eventually leads to independence. And, and your book uh, it concludes with independence, and I wonder if we can kind of build our way up to that moment. Um, so maybe you could spend a few minutes to talk about the, the conspiracies, uh, the 1810s, the 20s, the 40s, um, and how did they affect officials in Cuba? Does it, does it affect their sense of... island loyalty does it affect their perception of individuals of African descent sure the,
1: there are a few conspiracies: the the, the Soles y Carrillos de Bolívar in 1823. There's the the Aguila Negra later in the 1820s. There's a Joaquin Infante floats the idea of a constitution in the 18 teens for Cuba. You do see these occasional uh, movements toward independence or suggestions of anti colonial sentiment or organizing. Um, what often happens is is Kind of a contradictory or layers kind of schizophrenic process uh, by colonial officials in which certainly Cubans of African descent are often scapegoated. And in a period when the the transatlantic slave trade is is shifting to to be a clandestine effort, right, you're you're having fewer uh, imports from Africa or at least. Uh, African captives coming with much more difficulty than in the past. Just as Cuba's sugar economy takes off and there's this great demand for slave labor, uh, it's certainly advantageous for colonial officials to to uh, implement social controls during a moment like that. And they'll invoke these these independence efforts uh, when they do that. On the other hand. The 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 main agents that discovered and dis sort of dismantled the the soles y rayos movement were Cubans of African descent.
0: <laughs> There's
1: an amazing story in, that I found that's in the book about uh an illiterate African-born slave who's working at the printing press of one of the men who's printing broadsides about the the Soles y Rayos uh, conspiracy. This is organized by Colombians abroad and then sort of brought to Cuba. That man tells a friend of his who tells her, uh, a male superior of hers, who is the slave of a very prominent man in Havana, and all of them go to the Captain General's palace together <laughs> and decry that this, this revolt is happening. Uh, in another part of Cuba, at this very same moment, another slave hears about it and and sort of finds a broadside that's that's directed toward people of African descent, and he takes it to um, his owner, who's a woman who, who even though he can't read, keeps it away from him and won't tell him what it says, and and then he takes it to a priest who does the same thing, and finally he takes it to a local authority. And again, these conspiracies are, are kind of identified and demobilized, set off by the actions of Cubans of African descent. Sometimes uh, you'll hear after this, officials say, yes, this was... <laughs> Some people were blaming slaves for all of this, but we do recognize that the loyalty of these people is meaningful and valuable. Some will say, you know, as we're looking for ways to control the population, the free population might set a good, you know, they're so loyal, they might set a good example for all of these uh, newly arriving slaves to, to profess proper loyalty to Spanish rule and to the colonial order. So it's a, it's a contradictory process, and it's I what I what I never intend in the book is to suggest um, a harmonious model of complete social integration in which everyone's supporting Spanish rule but in these moments of rupture you see um, you see moments of su- acknowledgement of support and sort of deeply held suspicion at the same time
0: Well, and does that ultimately create certain problems for reform movements that might, you know, not necessarily be entirely revolutionary, but at least want to see some changes? So does the language around loyalty create certain complications for pushing certain reforms?
1: Um, I think it creates a sense that no one can rely on sort of natural affinities of people. And I think that's something that you notice independence leaders uh, Butting up against it at at regular intervals, the idea that one can't simply expect slaves or free people of color to to see a relationship between their individual struggles for autonomy and a national struggle for autonomy, uh, and that's that's one of the things that I wanted to point out in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's go into the the ten years of war, which is a pretty important part of the book, um, and, and for. For maybe readers or, or listeners that don't know much about it, could you sort of describe uh, what the Ten Years' War does and what the goals of its leaders are and, and um, maybe how how open that conflict is to individuals of various ethnic backgrounds?
1: Sure. The The conflict starts in in 1868 in October on the the eastern side of the island which is not the sugar intensive and then slavery intensive part of the island it's by a man named Carlos Manuel de Céspedes uh, a planter who organizes with others um the Grito de Gara, this is the call for independence, and uh, immediately starts recruiting, he frees the slaves on his own estate and, and notes that the, the independence movement will be committed to to the abolition of slavery. Uh, the Spanish government mobilizes immediately, but while they're waiting for troops to arrive, they they mobilize these militia, these local militias, including the militias of color, and start thinking about slave recruitment to combat what they call Cimarrones Blancos so that's interesting because Cimarron is the term for a runaway slave so they they invoke the specter of runaway slaves but just say it's these independence fighters are like white runaway slaves uh fairly soon you have slave recruitment in, in formalized ways, it's right? Two years into the conflict, Spain passes its law of gradual emancipation, which frees the elderly and frees children. And it includes this um, article three that I mentioned that frees any slave who fights on the side of Spain. That stays in place for the war, but becomes most uh, pronounced that in those early years, you have a lot of slaves sort of petitioning for their freedom the there's a reinvigorated spanish effort in the middle of the 1870s really by 1878 it's clear that, that spain is not going to lose the rebels are not going to capitulate easily, and there's a sort of a stalemate that leads to negotiations. That's when I, one of the, the mulatto generals of the independence movement, Antonio Maceo, uh, issues uh, his own separate protest that says, you know, the the... Cuban independence movement doesn't necessarily have to capitulate to Spain at this point, and in fact he argues for its radicalization to make race a more central component of the struggle. So you see at the end, um, as spain is, as Spain ultimately frees also the slaves who fought for rebels as a concession uh, you see some friction within the independence movement about the significance of of anti racism uh, They seem more or less settled on the question of anti slavery but having an anti racist ideology that's to say a nation of not old not blacks or whites but of Cubans becomes a priority for some of them. In the course of this war, I found, um, well, in doing the archival research in the National Archives in Havana, I found hundreds of interrogations, the actual sort of attempts that Cuban slaves made to win their freedom in reward for fighting for Spain. And that's one of the richest sources for my chapter on the Ten Years' War, because you actually see... Spanish officials sort of quibbling with and and arguing with and often agreeing with slaves on what counts as loyalty to Spain. So these are these are slaves who had been uprooted from their plantations, right? So they might have they might have had the, the estate burned down either by Spanish forces or rebel forces. Uh, they found their way to the to the Spanish army and. They fought sometimes instrumentally. Sometimes they knew terrain better and could locate pockets of insurgency. Um, sometimes their joining the rebel was was quite instrumental, and in those cases, they they tended not to win their freedom. So what surprised me is, you know, a slave who might fight valiantly in the Spanish army but explains he he joined because he didn't have any food and <laughs> saw the Spanish army as a source of you know sustenance wouldn't get his freedom, that the Spanish really were looking for an active affirmation of of its rule, that you couldn't just say, I defected because I, I didn't like the circumstances under which I was fighting with the rebels. You know, the slaves had to say, you know, I made a conscious decision to turn away from the independence movement and affirm Spanish rule. In the course of those interrogations, I found several dozen um, cases of enslaved women, sometimes actively fighting in combat and in other and, and times serving in auxiliary roles. And their freedom cases were a little bit different because they would, if they said, I, uh, I participated in combat, I was undertaking espionage, sometimes those activities were considered a little too threatening or I think masculinized to to warrant freedom when they didn't upset a gender order when they would say I served as a cook I served as a maid I cleaned the fort right that would entitle them to freedom so it's certainly when we talk about these military uh, milieu we're talking about largely male constituencies. But this is one of these fascinating windows into the lives of enslaved women that they too could could position themselves as as loyal subjects deserving their freedom.
0: Do you see anything in the Ten Years of War that might be uh, sort of the origins of some of the breakdown on these concepts of loyalty? Or, or when do you actually see the idea of loyalty finally dissolving a bit so that the independence becomes much more salient in people's minds? Is that more with the actual independence movement in 1895? Or do you see some of the seeds in the 1870s?
1: I think I see it more in the final war for independence, but what I you know, if I began this project as an attempt to kind of broaden our political imagination about 19th century Cuba, right, not to see Cuba simply as, as, as waiting for independence and, and there were no other politics happening on the island, um, certainly the politics of loyalty I can now argue were dominant, but it's the 10 years war where I think ordinary Cubans are able to see in, in, um, plausible terms, other political alternatives. So what I find is that the rhetoric of loyalty, right, the, the power of that concept doesn't diminish very much, but it relocates itself, right? So one can see oneself as proclaiming loyalty to something that's not Spain, whereas there might not have been so as many visible or viable political projects people could identify with before the Ten Years' War. By the 1890s, you see a real proliferation of political projects on the island. And I think, uh, again, people still talk in terms of loyalty, but they could talk about loyalty in, in much different terms. And one of the most important ones for the independence movement is, is, and this echoes, not just the the language of independence and nationalism in Spanish America, but, you know, as Benedict Anderson would tell us, right, nationalism in general, ties of horizontal loyalty. So, if my book was about loyalty to the crown, these really are about vertical ties. This is about being unequal by design and sort of locating one's subordinate position as a means of making claims. Those are all about ties to a higher power, <laughs> acknowledging one's submission loyalty can also be horizontal one can be loyal to a, a fraternity of of fighters in the struggle for independence and and soldiers can identify each other as brothers and uh that tends to be one of the ways that loyalty changes its valence in the independence war where it's not such a vertical concept anymore it's it's horizontalized um, if that's actually a word
0: so
1: <laughs> i you know, maybe because loyalty was my front and center focus, I didn't necessarily see it going away in the War for Independence. I just see the language relocating to other political projects, and that includes sort of projects with a transnational orientation. There's a There's an Unión Africana started in 1892 by an Antiguan labor activist named William George Emanuel, who's it's vaguely back to Africa in its ideology. And, and in at one point actually petitioned the spanish crown for a, to charter a ship that would that would allow returns to africa and spain responds by saying it can't do that because there aren't any africans in cuba that everyone's a spaniard <laughs> so here's one of these instances where the spanish officials may be instrumentalizing this language of loyalty and spanishness to uh <laughs> to deny a request for a, a kind of pan-Africanist organization to advance its its goals
0: well and that you're about sort of the ideas and the rhetoric of loyalty not necessarily breaking down but just uh transforming a little bit do you see that just, or the rhetoric around loyalty uh, becoming important in the early nationalist projects uh, you, you end the book really right at the moment of independence but do you see that carrying on afterward
1: I do. And in order to in order to see that, I had to, to qualify some of what I was talking about during the 19th century itself. So I think one of the frustrations one can find with sources that, that talk about sort of one's unswerving patriotism to Spain or, or, you know, unswerving loyalty to any cause is how much credence we can give it. You know, were people saying this just to, for strategic reasons? Did they were they really loyal? <laughs> I think is the is the question that always comes up when I'm looking at these documents. And, you know, when I was first telling people about this, the, the initial response was always, well, of course, someone's going to say that. Or, you know, certainly after the 10 years war, this associational life that flourishes didn't, you know, it was they sanctioned free speech. But of course, you couldn't actually say something supporting independence you, or you'd be exiled so yes there certainly are limits uh but i still think it's important to to understand how that language functions so one of the concepts in my book is loyal subjectivity not necessarily um sidestepping the question of whether or not people really were loyal or not since motive is a it's a it's a famously difficult thing to document historically, but it still means that the idea of a loyal subject is—it's such a—it's so prominent in Cuban society and so deeply ingrained that it was a readily available role that people could play. So, right—the the rhetoric around the loyal slave. This is really problematic rhetoric as we as we see it extend to the 20th century in the United States, for example, where the the trope of Uncle misremembered from Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin to talk about black accommodationism or kind of race betrayal, you know, still centers on this idea of the loyal slave. Whether or not slaves were, quote unquote, actually loyal isn't necessarily the interest. It's how people mobilize that language, right, of being a good, humble, loyal subject. What I find in the the post-independence period is a real kind of like a collapse Of any kind of discussion of pro Spanish settlement, right? The Cuban independence movement was successful. That certainly marginalizes discussions of pro Spanish settlement, even though you're in an era of massive immigration from Spain. I think what compromises the that discourse additionally is the U.S. intervention and the strong presence of the U.S. I think it it sort of limits the, the flexibility that Cubans have to talk about their politics, right, to they want to stick to uh, asserting their own sovereignty. That's compromised by the U.S. presence, so they're they're much more enthusiastic about sort of sounding unanimous in their in their support of the national project. But still, the way that they assert that loyalty to the Cuban national project relies on some of the same forms that were taking place in the colonial period. So people invoking their service to the military, right, being veterans. This is for for people ac- across the spectrum, so Cubans of African descent, Cubans of Spanish descent, all of them citing being in the military and, and serving the Cuban movement that way, and about the, their participation in a public sphere, that this associational life is a way of, of demonstrating one's allegiance to a project. So the both the military and the, the public sphere, these twin Sort of optics in my book, uh, looking at the 19th century, but those continue as ways to assert, is to to sort of inhabit loyal subjectivity in the 20th century, even though the object of that loyalty is now the Cuban nation.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I really like the way that you you end the book with that reflection on on aspects of loyalty and their continuance and and I think the book in general really presents some important challenges to the the way that people discuss Cuba during the nineteenth century and I think also just the way that scholars interpret the idea of loyalty amongst enslaved people or people of african descent um uh, so I really enjoyed it I think it was a, it's a really puts forward a lot of important ideas, not just for Latin American history, but I think for Cuba, Caribbean history generally. Um, just really quickly, uh, this is an open access book, and so I wonder if you could just say a little bit about that and where readers can find it?
1: Absolutely. They can, they can type ever faithful Sartorius on, on Google, and it, my book comes right up as a PDF that they can download. Um, I was approached by Duke University Press, that which published my book. Um, just as you know is finishing copy edits about participating in a pilot project they were entering with a with a non-profit called knowledge unlatched this is a uk-based organization that's that's trying to find alternative and and sustainable models of academic publishing and and they kind of tried a pilot project forging partnerships between university libraries and presses to um make certain titles available by open access. Uh, and they asked me if they wanted my book, if my book might be one of those. And the appeal for me was immediate, right? My book sells for what equates to one month salary in, uh, for most Cubans. Right, So it, it, the price of the book pretty much puts it out of reach for Cubans, but it's not like Amazon is available in Cuba anyway. <laughs> uh, yet, I should say. So it, the, the accessibility of my book to a Cuban audience is really constrained with with sort of our publishing norms today. And it it was important for me to be to make my work available to the people whose past I study, um, and for it to circulate even more broadly in in Latin America. Right? I think my book has things to to say to especially to Brazilianists. Um, and to other Caribbeanists, and so I, I was excited for the book to be able to circulate uh, for free. Uh, it means it's very easy to teach in classes now, right? It just—I <laughs> like the the ability for it to circulate. And so I'm—I appreciate kind of the efforts to look for new ways to to disseminate the work we do.
0: That's great. And I think it's important that we reach a broader audience than just ourselves, too, right? Um, so, uh, just to wrap up, uh, uh, what are you working on now? What's the, the next project? Um, like any good.
1: Scholar, I had a, a nicely packaged second project ready to go after this book about uh, sexuality in Cuban slave society and ideas of reproductivity. And then I gave a talk once about a, some, some documents that I had seen in the course of researching the book about passports, about Cubans of African descent who were looking for um, passports. right? So one of the things that they were looking to the Spanish government to do for them was, was guarantee their. Their mobility and their safe travel and I gave one talk about this and I was invited to give two more and then the same thing happened with those next two talks and I found this question of passports and the the legal and um, material context of people's mobility in the 19th century was raising a lot of questions that other scholars were interested in and that comes from scholars of borderlands It It certainly comes from people attentive to the travel restrictions between Cuba and the U.S. So, you know, any discussion of Cuba-U.S. travel got people very excited. Um, When we think about Atlantic history and the the kind of the island-to-island circulation within the Caribbean, people were... I think mobility is such a central theme in Caribbean history and its mechanics haven't necessarily been studied in detail. So to ask what kind of legal or political personhood someone needed to travel and how that was conditioned by race um, seemed to enter into a lot of conversations and I like to go where the conversation is. So right now I'm writing a book about uh, the use of passports and the, the legal culture of travel in the 19th century.
0: Well, that sounds really terrific, and I'm looking forward to to reading more about that. Um, well, thank you so much for for talking with us, and for our, our listeners, uh, get the book; it's free. Get it online. So, um, but but I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciated this conversation. Thank Thanks you so, much. so much. All right, take care.